We're turning to Psalm 2 this morning. This is our first in a summer series uh, preaching through selected psalms. We finished up last week out at the park uh, in our study uh, preaching through Ecclesiastes. So this morning we come to Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Please bow your head and let's pray together. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and your honor. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. In transparency, it has been said that my height is a little different than the other elders. So today, when they offered me the actual podium, the setup crew, in their humor, did ask if I needed a step stool. <laughs> I did decline, so I hope you can see me okay. In August 1944, one million Russian troops invaded Romania and installed a communist government. Now, like the government of the Soviet Union, it was a brutal dictatorship, jailing and murdering tens of thousands of innocent people, raging against God and hoping to, um, hoping to control and eventually wipe out Christianity, the communists confiscated church property and forbade pastors to work without a license from the government. Under these conditions, Pastor Richard Wormbrand was first arrested for preaching the gospel and distributing Bibles in 1948. He was ruled an enemy of the state and imprisoned in an underground solitary confinement cell with no lights, no windows, and where he was repeatedly beaten and tortured. Miraculously, he was released in 1956. He was ordered not to preach or circulate Christian material. Holding God as his highest ultimate authority, Wormbrand courageously continued his ministry, but was arrested again in 1959 but this time 
He was sentenced to 25 years. Friends, who is your source of authority? Institutions of man? Do you submit to the authority of God? Or you desire, or do you desire to be your own authority? I have the honor today to start us off in our summer series in the book of Psalms. The wonderful thing about the book of Psalms is that it has something for everyone. Many of you, like myself, have used the Psalms to express the full array of our thoughts and feelings in our time of spiritual need. Whether we're happy or depressed, sick or healthy, angry or at peace, there is a message within the Psalm for every circumstance and need. The Psalms were written throughout the entire period of the Old Testament. So the theology of the Psalms represents diverse theological themes as large as the Old Testament itself. And reformer Martin Luther called the Psalms a little Bible and a summary of the Old Testament. Psalms gives us one of the most complete and comprehensive revelations of the character of God in the entire Bible. If you want to know who God is, what he has done, and how we should respond to him, then the book of Psalms is one of the best places for us to start. The Psalms are fundamentally the hymn book of God's people. The Hebrew word for psalm actually means songs of praise. It takes the basic themes of Old Testament theology and turns them into a song. Now to reinforce this idea, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek word for psalm is psalmos, which comes from the Hebrew word zamar, which means to pluck, implying that the psalms were originally composed to be accompanied by a string instrument. And to further this idea even more, in the New Testament, we see in passages like Ephesians 5.19, where we are told to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, Paul chooses two interesting Greek root words when telling us to make melody in our heart. The first word, solo, to make melody, is more literally rendered to pluck the strings. And cardia, although does mean heart, it's more the concept of one's inner thoughts and feelings. Now knowing this, I would suggest that we can make the logical connection that we are to pluck the strings of our heart as we read, study, and pray the Psalms. Meaning that we are to be impacted by the Psalms with deep thought and emotion. Now, as we pluck the strings of our hearts in our Psalm series, we should always read and study the Psalms messianically. Christ said in Luke 24, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Old Testament, including the Psalms, looked forward to Christ's coming, and Christians throughout history instinctively knew to read the Psalm as if they had ultimately to do with Christ. So what better way to start our series in Psalm than with Psalm 2, which is known as the Messianic Psalm, and its theme is the reign of the Lord's anointed. This psalm is made up of four stanzas, each depicting a different scene or point of view. In stanza one, 
we are looking at and listening to people who are in rebellion against the king. They are conspiring and plotting as to how they can rid themselves of the king's authority in their lives. In stanza two, we are looking at and listening to God on his throne in heaven. In stanza three, we hear the king himself speaking of his right to be ruler. And finally, we conclude in stanza four, and this is where we hear the psalmist counsel us on what we should do. There's three points I care to address today. The first, do not fear man and his institutions. Again, do not fear man and his institutions. The second, our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. And finally, kiss the Son, trust in Christ. Kiss the Son, trust in Christ. Point one, do not fear man and his institutions. In this first stanza, the psalmist is observing the actions of wicked men. David writes, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. To understand this first section, in verses 1 through 3, we must realize, on one level, it applies to King David. The schemes of these rulers against the Lord and his anointed are rooted in a time in David's reign when some of his vassal nations sought to rebel. We're seeing this out of 2 Samuel 10 with the Ammonites and Syrians. So on one level, Psalm 2, 1 through 3, refers to those rebel kings and their attempt to shake off David's rule over them. But it's also obvious that the psalm goes far beyond David's experience. It's ultimately fulfilled in God's anointed one of verse 2. Now, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David wrote this psalm not only about himself, but in a deeper and much more complete way, about the Messiah, Jesus. Just as these kings rebelled against King David, so all men and nations rebel against King Jesus. David starts with, why do the nations rage? David's asking a rhetorical question, why? Why do people rebel against God and his decree? The question comes across as incredulous, almost as if the psalmist can't believe mankind can be so foolish. The rage that these rulers are expressing is not some passive internal feeling because the Hebrew verb is expressive of an outward, outward agitation implying an allusion to the rolling and roaring of the sea. Have any of you ever experienced the power of a raging, tumultuous sea? Consider this. The aircraft carrier, the USS Abraham Lincoln, is 1,100 feet long. That's three and a half football fields. It's 257 feet wide, almost an entire football field. It weighs 97,000 tons. That's 194 million pounds. Or for you to be more practical, if you want to be more practical, that's 776 million quarter pounders with cheese. <laughs> it carries 6,000 men. 
90 aircraft, and it's powered by two nuclear reactors that can propel it as fast through the water as we drive on I-25. While I was deployed on the Abe Lincoln during Operation Desert Storm, I experienced raging seas. Now, despite the carrier's size, when in raging seas, in order to keep your balance while moving about the ship, you would have to put your foot on the bulkhead, which is Navy speak for wall, to prevent yourself from falling over. That's how much it would pitch and roll. Now, think of the peoples and nations as if in tumultuous, as if in a tumultuous assembly, raging with a fury like the raging of the sea, a sea that can toss around an aircraft carrier. It's this level of rage and agitation that these men and rulers go to resist God's providential rule. Now these nations are being organized by their political leaders. Their kings and rulers are setting themselves. They're taking a stand, literally sitting together, denoting their deliberation to resist God. Now this idea of taking counsel together goes clear back to the garden when Adam and Eve succumbed to Satan's temptation and disobeyed God. The human race fell into sin and thus came under God's judgment. This rebellion took on an organized form at the Tower of Babel. When proud men came together and proposed to build a tower into heaven to make a name for themselves. We see this in Genesis 11. So since the time of Babel, men have continued to band themselves together against God. Their mistake Their mistaken belief is that if men stand united against God, they have a better chance to resist his decree. Frankly, I would say it's pooled ignorance. The end of verse 2 says that they are against the Lord and against his anointed. Anointed in the Hebrew does mean one who receives oil on his forehead, but at times it's translated Messiah. And in the Septuagint, it's uh, translated Christ. So they oppose both the Lord and his Messiah, Christ. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 28. This was written roughly 900 years after Psalm 2. And the apostle Peter, writing with the same divine authority as David, quotes Psalm 2, telling us Jesus is that anointed one, the king. You'll notice, for you ESV readers, my quote is a little different. I preferred the way the NIV NIV translated this, so don't judge me. Acts 4, 25 through 28. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouths of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Again, they conspired against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. With this in mind, we can now see this psalm is not historically bound to just David's day, but it's applicable to all ages, including our own. 
use a 9th century BC language. This psalm is describing with complete accuracy the world in which we live today. Nations, people, kings, and rulers, they take their stand against God the Father and his Son, Lord Jesus. They say, let us get rid of God's rule over our lives. Mankind, naturally, we want to be our own source of authority. A famous example of trying to rid the world of the Lord and his Messiah was the Roman Emperor Diocletian. He reigned from A.D. 284 to 305 and was such a determined enemy of Christ and his people that he persecuted the church mercilessly, desiring to wipe the church off the face of the earth. Now, so confident that he had defeated Christianity, Diocletian set up two monuments on the frontier of his empire with these inscriptions. The first monument says, Diocletian, Jehovian, Maximian, Hercules, Caesar, Augusti, for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. The second monument is very similar. Diocletian, Jehovian, Maximian, Maximian, Hercules, Caesars, Augusti, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ. What a fool. Diocletian is dead and gone, a footnote on the pages of history. Yet Christ and Christianity live, and the gospel is still spreading over the earth. As we'll see in the following stanza, stanzas, men, governors, and kings are completely beneath the control of our God. So friends, do not fear man and his institutions, because like Diocletian, rulers and their legacies cease to exist and are forgotten. Our second point today, our God is sovereign. After describing this rebellion, the psalmist changes scenes. We move from the bitter conspiracy of the people in the first stanza to the throne room of God in the second stanza. And the second stanza depicts the Lord in heaven laughing. He who sits in the heavens laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 4 starts off, He who sits in heaven shall laugh. Now, the writer is using an anthropomorphism, which is a figure of speech giving human physical characteristics to God, to describe God sitting on his throne, to draw a sharp contrast between the little kings of earth and the sovereign king on his heavenly throne. God isn't pacing back and forth in the throne room of heaven, wondering what he should do next. God sits in perfect peace and assurance. The sovereign is not threatened by man's rebellion. He is not made nervous by man's scheming or plotting. God is not troubled by their anger. God does not fear our wrath. Listen to the words of theologian James Montgomery Boyce. God does not tremble. He does not hide behind a vast celestial rampart, counting the enemy and 
calculating whether or not he has sufficient force to counter this new challenge to his kingdom. He does not even rise from where he is sitting. He simply laughs at these great imbeciles. Verse 4 goes on to say, The Lord shall hold them in derision. The, the word derision means to mock, to scoff, or to ridicule. Now, we might bristle a little bit at the notion of God mocking or ridiculing anyone. But this is holy, supreme contempt. The earthly ruler's vain rage excites God's holy justice. Again, the earthly ruler's rage is exciting God's holy justice. And remember, he is the Lord, the Hebrew Adonai, the sovereign. And what does this sovereign do? He speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. I wrestled over this verse for two weeks. It's complicated in its structure and wording because it's all about the demise of these small rulers. If we break the Hebrew down into more literal definitions, uh, just taking the, the Hebrew word itself and just giving us what it defines as, the word speak is more defined as to communicate in a forceful, destructive sense. Not as I'm speaking up here today, but with authority, with the intent to destroy. Terrify is more literally rendered cause to tremble inwardly to the core of the person. And fury is the Lord's fierce, burning anger. So God is speaking forcefully, destructively, to cause these men to tremble in their innermost being from his fierce, burning anger. God's righteous indignation and contempt is roused. For God to speak is for him to act. For what he resolves, he will do. That is affirmed throughout scripture. Psalm 33, 9. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. What is he telling them? He says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God wants defiant mankind to know that he has established a king. His king. The defiant men in view in the psalm are kings and rulers, and God especially wants them to know there's a king greater than they are. God's king is set, is set, meaning the anointed one is firmly placed. It's giving the allusion in the Hebrew to the casting of an image in a mold that's solidified, meaning it is done. Now we transition into the third stanza, where the king himself is speaking of his right to be ruler. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, verse 7 is indicating that the Lord's anointed himself as speaking. And the language in the Hebrew is somewhat more emphatic than just merely speaking. It means to inscribe, to engrave the decree that God had spoken to him. Now this decree that the psalmist is writing of is one of a royal inauguration. 
pointing to the Davidic covenant that God promised David that one of his heirs would sit on Israel's throne. And this is ultimately pointing to Christ. And the psalmist goes on to confirm this. You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is metaphorical language to convey the legal birth of a king and a declaration that God's anointed, his Messiah, is the rightful Davidic heir. The Lord is the father to the king, and the king is God's son. David goes on in verse 8 and says, the, Lord, the Lord's Messiah, in verse 8, we see that the Lord's Messiah is holding the nations as his inheritance. And this goes far beyond the idea of countries and continents. The writer has all of mankind in view. He will rule over all nations and all people. And the act of judgment has been given to Christ. The New Testament tells us in John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. We also see in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one might receive what's due him for things done in the body, whether good or evil. Now we see in verse 9 that Christ has such power over the nations that they are like clay pots that he can and will shatter with a blow from his rod of iron. This idea of Christ destroying his enemies is communicated in other places in Scripture. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, we see when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. In Revelation 2, 27, he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces. God has established his king, and there is not one person in all of history who does not come under the rightful and ultimate control of Jesus Christ. He has every right to rule them with an iron scepter, speaking with the authority to do with them as he chooses or to dash them to pieces like pottery thrown on the ground. That is God's sovereign right. R.C. Sproul states, One amazing fact about God isn't that he doesn't save everyone, but that he doesn't destroy everyone. Friends, our God is sovereign. But this psalm ends with tremendously wise counsel. Point three, kiss the Son. Trust in Christ. The psalm ends with a fourth stanza containing the psalmist counsel of what the leaders of the nations, and frankly we, should do. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
in verse 10 and 11, we see that after the words of warning from the Lord's Messiah, the psalmist counsels the kings of the earth to surrender to God and give him proper reverence. In this submitted, surrendered place, they can rejoice, yet still with the appropriate fear and trembling. Now, if the kings of the earth are commanded to humble themselves before the Lord's Messiah, then how much more does this apply to the rest of us? Verse 12, kiss the son. Now, this primarily has in mind the kiss of submission, where a dignitary receives the humble kiss of an inferior. It also hints at the affection that God wants if we're in relationship to him. God wants us to recognize our proper place before him. But he also wants us to rejoice in him and be affectionate towards him. As verse 12 continues, it tells us there are two choices, perish or be blessed. Those who don't give submission to Christ will perish. They will be shattered to pieces like a clay pot. They will have vengeance inflicted upon them, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians. Now this, as contrasted to trusting in Christ, because when we trust in him and have a relationship with him, we are blessed. And the word trust is kasha, meaning literally flee for protection. So when we flee for protection in him and have a relationship with him, we are blessed. Psalm 147.11 tells us, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, God's son, the king, died on the cross to take away the wrath of God that should have been poured out on us in our sin. If we kiss the son, if we trust in Christ, Christ tells us we cross over from death to life and will not be condemned. Hear the words of Christ in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We learn such great lessons from history. And as we come to a close, I think we can find encouragement in Pastor Wormbrand's story. By God's sovereignty, Pastor Wormbrand did not spend 25 years in prison. In 1964, two Christian groups paid $10,000 as a ransom to the communist government to bring Wormbrand and his family out of Romania. They fled to the United States, and once here, they started Voice of the Martyrs, a ministry to persecuted Christians throughout the world. A piece of irony that shows the foolishness of man. The communist government in Romania collapsed in 1989, forgotten like Diocletian. But Richard Wormbrand and his wife Sabina returned to to Romania to set up a Christian library and print shop to publish and circulate Christian teaching material. The new government offered a storage warehouse where they could store their material 
and it turned out to be in the former prison cell in which Richard had spent his first three years in confinement and was tortured. God chose this place of sorrow to vindicate himself and his mission. Again, friends, who is your source of authority? For all those who do trust in Christ, this psalm offers a world of comfort and consolation because it delights in God's sovereignty and his sure and certain promise to his son, the King Jesus. It's that perspective that gives life, and it's that perspective that gives us the courage to keep going on. So no matter what's happening in your life, your God is in charge, and he has made a promise that Jesus has fulfilled and that you can rely on. Jesus is risen. God has declared him king. Nothing can thwart his rule, and nothing can thwart his purposes of grace. Our Jesus reigns and shall reign. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for our time together this morning studying your word. Please, God Almighty, cause it to weigh on our hearts, transform our minds, and apply it to our lives. It's in your sovereign holy name we pray these things. Amen.